Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, it's 2020, and we're kicking off the new year, what I think is going to be a spectacular show. We have as a special guest today, someone who has been on the podcast before, David Abel, a reporter with the Boston Globe, Pulitzer Prize winner, and also a documentary filmmaker who has released several coastal-related documentary films, including Sacred Cod, Lobster Wars, and a new film under development right now. David is the host of the podcast Climate Rising and is a person who spent a great deal of time tracking and trying to understand and reporting on the very critical issue of the Maine lobster fishery and attempts by the federal government to protect the North Atlantic right whale. That's right, Peter. So stoked to have David Abel on the line to learn more about uh, this issue that our audience knows we follow very closely. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. We'd like to thank two sponsors kicking off 2020 that helped keep Coastal News Today going and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. We're welcoming this year LJA Engineering, a fantastic coastal engineering and civil engineering firm headquartered in Houston, Texas with offices along the Gulf Coast. They have an exceptional and new coastal resiliency department that uh, can help out communities all around the American shoreline with coastal resiliency, vulnerability analysis and planning. We wanna welcome them. Find more about LJA at lja.com. And we also want to thank our sponsor, Coastal Transplants out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Steve Mercer and his team are some of the best coastal dune restorers and planters in the country. Uh, they travel around the southeast and Gulf Coast collecting native seeds of, you know, all the full suite of dune plants. They cultivate them on their farm and do plantings, and they are just absolutely fantastic at what they do. Uh, you can reach them at coastaltransplants.com. Seriously, if you are a private homeowner, a city, someone who has a dune restoration project or a dune vegetation project that you want to take care of, go to coastaltransplants.com and learn more. Well, David, welcome to the American Shoreline podcast. Can you tell us what you've been up to and give us our listeners an overview of what's going on with the Maine lobster fishery and the North Atlantic right whale? Uh, I have been uh, a bit busy uh, balancing the day job, working for the newspaper and moonlighting, as you noted, as a filmmaker. And I'm now working on a film and have been for much of the past year, pretty much since the last time we spoke, about the, uh, the dire state of the North Atlantic right whale. And uh, that species is among uh, one of the most endangered marine mammals on the planet. There are now believed to be fewer than 400 of them left. And uh, what makes it especially difficult, uh, a, a difficult issue is that the chief source of uh, danger to this uh, whale is uh, the lobster lines that uh, – that extend throughout the Gulf of Maine primarily uh, and into uh, nor into uh, Atlantic Canada. Well, David, it's been a subject of incredible uh, interest, both at the federal level, at the NOAA, 
fisheries group, the, no, the right whale take reduction team's effort to protect this whale, uh, engagement with the Maine Lobsterman Association, the congressional delegation, and now the president of the United States. You recently published an article in The Globe called Facing New Threats, Lobstermen's Take a Hard Line Against Right Whale Protections. Tell us what's going on in the regulatory debate about the protection of the North Atlantic right whale. So uh, last spring, um, uh, this group that you're talking about, the Atlantic Whale Take Reduction Team, met in Providence, Rhode Island. And after a week of skirmishing, this team of scientists and fishermen and state and federal officials, among others, uh, came up with this plan, which really uh, was historic on many levels. It was this uh, consensus agreement that would um, effectively cut the number of uh, surface, uh, I'm sorry, buoy lines, those, those lines that go from the um, that extend from the surface to the sea floor, it would cut those vital uh, lines by 50%. And if that were uh, to happen, that could have major consequences for, uh, for the fishery in New England, for the lobster fishery. Uh, and most of that fishery is based, of course, in Maine. And um, those, um, uh, that agreement which was agreed to by all uh, the officials at Maine, from Maine who were at this meeting, as well as the, lobster, the representative of um, the lobstermen uh, who were there. They agreed to this as well. Uh, there were a number of other parts of this agreement, including uh, requirements that lobstermen use weaker lines, those kinds of lines that might break if they uh, were um, entangling uh, one of these massive whales. Uh, however, uh, in the in the months since that agreement, there has been a, a major backlash from the rank and file lobstermen, and as a result of that, the entire congressional delegation in Maine, as well as the governor and many other state officials, uh, and the lobstermen who agreed to this proposal have since rejected it, and they have uh, they've held protests and. Uh, they have uh, written letters to President Trump and called uh, for the agency, for NOAA, to uh, not implement these rules. And they have introduced in the meantime, actually just a few days ago, um, this past week, they introduced a proposal that would uh, do much less than what was called for at the take reduction team in uh, in the spring, and I'm happy to explain that. Great. And David, in your reporting on this topic, you, you quoted the governor, Janet Mills, in Maine, who has taken a hard line in favor of the lobster industry against what is called the absurd federal overreach uh, in the take reduction team's strategy to save the whale. Uh, can you help our listeners understand how this spun out of control or how it got off track, because it seemed like there was momentum moving forward. What happened? What changed the game? Well, that is a that is a really uh, good question, and um, and one that I am still trying to understand. Um, I think that there was a, a a consensus and an understanding that. Uh, that something had to be done to protect this species. In the last uh, decade, 
we have seen uh, the the population of the right whale decline by 20 percent. And uh, based on all accounts, the leading cause of uh, that spike in deaths um, and also plummeting of births. Um, we've seen in 2017, we saw a record number of deaths, 17 deaths. And then uh, in 2018, we saw um, zero births, which was unprecedented to have no calves born. Um, and then uh, this past year, we saw 10 right whale deaths. And according to NOAA, one unnatural death of a right whale could doom the species to extinction or functional extinction uh, within the next two or so decades. So everybody, uh, I think, agreed that something needed to be done and everyone agreed that the, the most urgent threat uh, was dealing with all of the uh, entanglements. But um, what seems to have occurred is that the folks who were on the TRT who are representing lobstermen and uh, Maine, either did two things. One, they got ahead of their skis and maybe did not build sufficient consensus among the rank and file. And then when they went back, uh, they got an earful and uh, there was a, a divide between uh, folks uh, in Maine who are represented, lobstermen in Maine who are represented by uh, the Maine Lobstering Union, which came out very heavily against this. And then another organization that represents many lobstermen, the Maine Lobstermen's Association, uh, which is a separate organization, which had supported initially the TRT uh, proposal. There was kind of a cleavage uh, in um, uh, in support for this proposal from these two organizations. And as a result of the pressure and the backlash, um, the Maine Lobstermen's Association that had a representative on the TRT withdrew her support and ended up causing uh, um, them to pull out of the agreement and call for much uh, different and arguably uh, less aggressive steps to protect the right whales. So um, it could it could have been, and if you look at it, at it from a Machiavellian point of view or, or a cynical point of view, perhaps this was uh, this was a plan all along. Um, in that, it's conceivable that in order to avoid controversy and as a way to blunt uh, criticism on this on the TRT, uh, that Maine and uh, their represent the their lobstermen representatives decided to just go along with the proposal and then allow their politicians to take the flack by opposing it. That's that's one possible explanation. Uh, and the other explanation is that they did agree to it, but then they just decided, as they've said, that uh, after further thought and further review of the proposal, that it just uh, was going to be too dangerous and that it would um, uh, too economically dangerous, and they've also claimed that it would potentially uh, endanger the safety of lobstermen who uh, would have to, according to this plan, increase the number of traps they fish per trawl line, um, meaning that rather than fishing one trap per, per buoy line, they might have to put two or three or uh, five or depending on their distance from shore as much as 25 uh, traps per trawl line. And all of that designed, of course, to reduce the number of vertical lines in the water that entrap these whales 
Um, but David, tell us a little bit about the overall status of the fishery and some of the pressures that the fishery is under. It's not just the right whale issue that's concerning to the lobstermen. You mentioned in your article the herring uh, limitations on the bait used in this fishery. Uh, I think there's been a substantial reduction in the allowed herring catch, which supplies the bait for the fishery, and the trade issues uh, with respect to Chinese exports of lob Maine lobster. Can you talk about those broader uh, stresses on this fishery? Absolutely. And let me let me just put in a larger context uh, first. And, and I'll get to this in a minute. But yeah, uh, there, there have absolutely uh, been uh, some significant challenges uh, and headwinds facing the lobster uh, industry in Maine and throughout uh, uh, the Gulf of Maine, which extends to New Hampshire and and Massachusetts. Um, but the, the bigger picture, as we um, as we get into in Lobster War, my film about um, uh, about how climate change is affecting lobster, uh, that that's in broad strokes. Which I should say, um, Lobster War will become uh, for the first time available digitally uh, throughout the nation on uh, iTunes and every other digital platform s starting on January 21st. So I Fantastic. hope everybody, uh, everybody, uh, looks for it. It'll be the first time it's, uh, uh, available outside a theater. Um, but as we get into in that film, we have seen, uh, actually a major surge in the lobster catch, uh, particularly in Maine over the course of the last uh, over the course of the last two decades, um, we have seen the lobster catch uh, rise to uh, more than uh, um, 130 million pounds as of 2016, which was the record catch when uh, the the value of that catch was uh, uh, roughly about a half a billion dollars, and the overall economic impact uh, is as of the lobster industry is estimated to be more than $1.5 billion in Maine. So it is a crucial uh, part of uh, Maine's economy. Um, what we have seen in the last year or two is significant changes that while historically we are still at a, uh, at a, at a pinnacle of the o overall lobster catch, uh, which is risen by uh, – tenfold over the last several decades um in the last year we have seen um the lobster catch actually decline about 40 percent and this was an estimate uh that was uh, put out there this fall and we don't know what the final numbers will be and uh the last few months are usually a pretty strong part of the lobster catch so it's very possible that the the overall catch will have caught up with recent uh levels of uh uh of the catch in recent years but um the most recent estimate that was uh that was released by the department of marine resources in maine was that we were seeing a 40 percent decline from the previous year which of course was still one of the highest uh highest catches on record um, uh, but that was potentially damaging uh, to a lot of uh, lobstermen. We were also seeing a 70% cut in the herring uh, 
in the herring quota. And herring is the primary bait that lobstermen use. And they have had to find other sources of bait, more expensive in some circumstances, not as effective in other circumstances, and questionable in other circumstances. Uh, Some some lobstermen are using pig hide uh, for their bait, which raises all kinds of questions about uh, what people are consuming if they're consuming lobster that uh, was feeding on pig hide. Mm -hmm. Um, um, And finally, um, one of the other concerns, uh, urgent concerns, has been the tariffs uh, that the, uh, the Trump administration um, uh, has introduced in its trade war against China. And as retaliation for that, uh, China imposed their own tariffs and hit the lobster industry, which have decimated the burgeoning export market of Maine lobster to uh, to China, and so um, so that has also had an impact. When you're thinking about where we go from here, you mentioned in the article that the uh, Maine lobstermen in the state of Maine have come forward with a proposal in uh, as an alternative to what the NOAA Take Reduction Team has come up with. Can you tell us about what they're offering as a way to protect these whales? in a more, uh, I guess, in a way that's more acceptable to them. What did they propose? So in the in the months since uh, the uh, state of Maine agreed to the TRT proposal, they have floated uh, this counterproposal. And in, uh, in the broadest, uh, easiest to understand explanation, rather than cutting their lobster, uh, their vertical lines uh, or buoy lines by 50%, Overall, the estimate, and some suggest this is an inflated figure, uh, but uh, overall, Maine suggests that they would cut just 25% of their uh, vertical lines. Um, The thing is that um, about 70% of lobstermen in Maine would be exempt from having to uh, comply with any changes in how they set their buoy lines, uh, because based on their on the state of Maine's proposal, that um, uh, um, those lobstermen fish close enough to shore that uh, they they claim there isn't a threat of entangling right whales. Uh, the folks on the other side, environmental groups, suggest that that's. Uh, not true, and the right whale is often uh, referred to as the urban whale, often because they tend to uh, feed and swim really close to shore, which is one of the reasons why they were hunted uh, so successfully uh, for centuries before that, before whaling was banned um, uh, uh, nearly a century ago. I'm going to jump in here, David. Uh, I've got just so many questions, and it's it's. Great. You know, you've been working up there and talking to fishermen um, for a long time. And it's just it's great to have a journalist perspective of what has changed. And uh, I've got just got a couple questions here. But my, my first question is um, with regard to the politics in your article in the Boston Globe, you talk about how. Uh, state officials are now kind of under the gun. Uh, they're being pushed by the lobster industry. Um, of course, the feds, the feds are on the other end trying to, they're being sued by the whale activists uh, to uh, protect these whales. 
Um, and the state is in the middle. There's a Senate election in Maine coming up. Uh, we're obviously coming up into an, an election year. Maine has a long history of being a relevant political uh, uh, indicator in our country. I'm just curious to know what your what your assessment is of the politics here. Is this a major issue in Maine politics right now? Do you anticipate that it will will be in this election? It, it is a fascinating question and uh, one I've uh, uh, thought a lot about and wondered a lot about uh, because, as you know, Maine is a crucial um, swing state and, and uh, its electoral votes are divided. Uh, so uh, one could be rather than it. It's not a take all state, I don't believe. Uh, so so uh, its electoral votes could be divided by the Democrats and, and Republicans and um, and. You know, I have a hard time imagining that um, uh, the Republicans are going to want to uh, lose or either party are going to want to uh, risk losing those potentially crucial electoral votes. And um, and what we've seen uh, at this point is a bipartisan opposition to the federal plan. Um um, or the take reduction team's plan in Maine. So we've seen the governor, who's now a Democrat, uh, and we've seen the Democratic congressman, uh, as well as uh, Susan Collins, the Republican senator, senator and Angus King, who uh, is nominally an independent, uh, all line up against uh, these these measures. Um, so um, so it's, it is interesting and... The politics make it daunting. That all said, on the flip side, uh, the agency folks, I interviewed Mike Pentany, who is the regional administrator of NOAA in, um, uh, in New England. And he insisted to me that politics will not play a role in this decision. Uh, and, um, and yet I, I've spoken to other folks at NOAA who say that, you know, there's there's certainly politics is going to play some kind of role. And um, and it already seems to me, based on my conversations with folks at NOAA, that because of the very difficult politics in Maine, um, it's likely um, that. Uh, that the counterproposal that has been offered by Maine um, will likely be accepted in lieu of the TRT's uh, plan. And recent uh, simulations that uh, the agency has conducted to try to figure out how much uh, protection the Maine plan would provide to right whales uh, suggests, uh, according to what folks at NOAA have told me, that um, that. Maine's plan would be adequate. It would do a little less, uh, apparently, than the TRT's plan or the take reduction team's plan, uh, but it would do uh, enough. And to and to just uh, calculate that, um, the the TRT was tasked with coming up with a plan that would reduce the risk of injury or death to North Atlantic right whales by between 60 and 80%. They came up with a plan that they suggested would reduce those risks by 60%. 
And uh, according to Noah, the, the recent simulation of the main plan would, uh, they say, reduce risks and injuries to right risks and of injury and death to North Atlantic right whales by uh, in the nature of 50, 55 percent, something like that. Well, it sounds like it's it's not a terrible fallback position to take if you are Noah. Um, This this next question, you know, it's similar. I want to drill down a little bit deeper, though, into the actual fishing communities there that line uh, the main shoreline. We've talked about it before when we talk about this fishery, but it's a fascinating fishery in that it's it's not aggregated into like five boats like you see in uh, in other big fisheries in America. Uh, this is there are thousands of lobstermen, thousands of boats that go out. Um, it's a cottage industry spread ar- along the whole shoreline. And you've had the opportunity to go and talk to these folks over the past several years. And in a segment that I'm going to name right now, like uh, David takes the temperature. <laughs> what is the what what? What's the vibe like out there? Um, when we spoke last, you said, hey, look, they're, they're building new boats. It's still optimistic. They're going to hand this down. But, you know, maybe deep beneath the, the surface, there was just a, a, a hint of um, uncertainty. Uh, but maybe that could be chalked up of just the life of a fisherman. Has that changed? Are, are, is, are fishermen starting to get more anxious? And is that is that now becoming part of the the decision-making process um well as you guys well know anxiety and i think we talked about this last time uh anxiety or fear of uh the unknown is uh, endemic among all fishermen and uh you know they don't know what tomorrow will bring and there's always a fear that it's going to all come collapsing um uh down and I think a lot of people for years have had that fear, particularly with the lobster industry and how the catch has surged uh, so much in recent years. And many have questioned whether that's sustainable. And also um, a, a slew of studies have suggested that the, um, uh, that the recruitment of uh, juvenile or or baby lobsters in uh, recent years has been off, um, suggesting that there's potentially a collapse. All of uh, this is scrambled, of course, as we discussed the last time, by, by climate change. And so uh, those studies may not be accurate because the, uh, the, um, they, they are looking uh, for uh, juvenile uh, or baby lobster in places where they no longer might be uh, because they're moving and they're moving to deeper, colder water as the Gulf of Maine warms faster than almost any other body of water on the planet. And uh, those surging temperatures have arguably in recent years led to a sweet spot and uh, have helped uh, create this surge in the lobster population. Um, and some fear that as the waters warm, uh, we could see in uh, the northern Gulf of Maine or the um, eastern Gulf of Maine, uh, what we've seen in the southern portion of Gulf of Maine and south of Cape Cod, which is a fall off, a dramatic fall off in the, in the lobster catch in um, 
uh, south of Cape Cod through Long Island Sound in New York, uh, we've seen a 90% drop in the lobster catch, which uh, most folks and scientists attribute to climate change. And that is potentially uh, going to happen as uh, the, the water column warms further north and the lobster catch moves uh, further uh, up the coast to Maine, which again is the subject of my last film, Lobster War. Uh, but um, but I think when you when you take that that anxiety, which has been deep seated in recent years, even as the catch has uh, increased, in, and as you know, lobstermen have bought new boats and added additions to their houses and seen their businesses boom. Um, there is that deep seated fear that in addition to the changes that we're seeing uh, with the warming water, uh, we are seeing the impact on herring. We're seeing um, uh, we're seeing all kinds of unpredictable other things happen like trade wars. And all of these things, when you combine them together uh, and, and most urgently to them uh, and potentially catastrophic for a lot of uh, Maine fishermen, according to them, is new regulations that could radically uh, change how they have to fish, um, causing them, cause increasing their expenses, and ultimately uh, potentially banning vertical lines. Um, and, uh, and, and this is not on the table at the moment, but a lot of folks worry that uh, lawsuits could potentially precipitate requirements for closures in the lobster fishery to protect right whales if um, if these uh, other uh, proposals by the TRT in Maine are considered insufficient by the courts. And there are currently lawsuits, which is the big wild card here, uh, that, could, uh, that could change and scramble the whole uh, regulatory process and, and uh, put new requirements on the industry that uh, would be potentially uh, really burdensome for a lot of lobstermen and much of Maine's uh, fishery. Well, it is clearly, David, a, a high-stakes game. Uh, I don't want to say game, but a very high-stakes situation here with a $500 billion uh, fishery with an economic impact well in excess of a billion dollars. There are millions of lines that I understand, vertical lines that are in the water during the course of a fishing season. Uh, when, you, when you think down the road here, uh, we had the opportunity to speak with Rob Morris of EdgeTech. This is a company that is developing a ropeless fishing technology, a non-vertical line uh, lobster trap. Uh, is, with, a, with a fishery this lucrative, is it possible we can buy our way out of this problem by by subsidizing new technology in the fishery. What are you hearing about that issue? Can we, can we find a solution? Well, that is, uh, in the eyes of environmentalists, the promise and the way to square the circle, uh, and in the eyes of fishermen, uh, the, the deep peril. Um, and uh, based on my understanding, and I've spoken to Rob, and I've spoken to other folks who are developing similar kinds of ropeless fishing systems, uh, there is great promise in this technology. Uh, it seems like it offers a lot of a lot of potential advantages. However, at the moment, 
the technology is uh, very much in its infancy for a fishery as big and um, vital as the lobster fishery in Maine. And, um, and it would uh, create potential challenges, specifically financial challenges, because right, right now the, te- the technology is really expensive. However, uh, on, the, on the flip side, we subsidize farmers in the United States. Uh, we subsidize a lot of industries that we consider critical. And my sense of it is that, you know, when you scale up this technology, um, I can envision a time, and, and NOAA recently just announced that they were going to issue, uh, they're setting aside, I think, $1.6 million to the lobster industry to help them cope with the the the, um, the uh, potential regulations that are slated to be announced in the next few weeks or months uh, by NOAA, uh, whether they accept Maine's proposal or whether they uh, go with the TRT's proposal. Um, uh, at, at the moment, ropeless fishing is not on the table, but it is uh, certainly an option and certainly in the minds of regulators, scientists, uh, environmental advocates, advocates and of course fishermen and some fishermen uh have been eager to try to test this uh equipment here in massachusetts uh in cape cod bay where we actually do have the only real closure uh that affects a lot of lobstermen uh and and that's about to go into effect shortly if it hasn't already gone into effect um uh, for several months a year, we closed down much of the lobster fishery in Cape Cod Bay because uh, this time of year, the whales uh, uh, start to come up here. And um, and so folks uh, who fish in that, in those waters, are eager to test the equipment because uh, if they can avoid using vertical lines, the, that closure might not be necessary. Right. So, um, so. You know, and if courts do uh, step in, which is a, a significant possibility, by June we should have uh, a decision by a federal judge on lawsuits about very directly related to the use of vertical lines. And if that judge, who's already uh, um, uh, issued a decision closing a area off Nantucket uh, to gillnet fishing, um, um, that uh, I'm sorry, cl- that is that closed an area that had been opened uh, in recent years by NOAA to allow gillnet fishing. Um, the judge in that case is the same judge that is looking, uh, that is weighing the evidence um, and the arguments by environmental advocates about the uh, dangers of vertical lines to right whales. And that judge has already clearly noted his concerns about uh, the extinction of the species. Wow. So uh, it, 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 it is a big uh, concern for lobstermen. And Patrick Kelleher, the commissioner of the Department of Marine Resources, highlighted um, that concern in a recent meeting he had in Portland, Maine with lobstermen to discuss his counterproposal to the TRT. Well, it is a, you know, it seems to me, given the, the value of the fishery, that an investment in this technology is one avenue to reduce the risk to these whales. You noted another issue in your article that I think is really critical and, and important uh, consideration from the standpoint of the Maine lobstermen, and that is the role of Canada 
and what's going on in, in Canadian waters. You noted in the article that of the 30 dead whales found since 2017, 21 of them were uh, killed in Canadian waters. Can you talk about uh, whether or not the United States can effectively engage the Canadians to, to reduce the risk to this very, very uh, precarious right whale population? Right. And that's and that is one of the arguments that folks in Maine say they're they're saying, hey, why are you picking on us? Why are you pointing the blame at us? Why are you cause asking us to take all of this responsibility when the preponderance of the problem now appears to be in in Canada? Um, that said, uh, um, to your question, NOAA has been working uh, with their counterparts, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans in Canada. And unlike um, in the United States, uh, where there is a long bureaucratic process to make any significant changes, uh, as we're seeing now with the proposal to reduce vertical lines in the Gulf of Maine, in Canada, they can act far more swiftly. They have a very different system. And essentially, the minister of Department of Fisheries and Oceans just has to, uh, you know, swipe a pen and what uh, he says becomes the de facto law. And over the last few years, they have actually taken quite aggressive action uh, in implementing all kinds of changes to their fisheries. Um, they have uh, created these things called dynamic closures that whenever a whale is spotted within a certain um, a certain radius, that entire area is shut down to lobster and crab fishing uh, and any kind of pot fishing that fish fisheries that exist in those waters. Uh, they've also reduced uh, ship um, um, ship speeds to try to reduce the threat of ship strikes to right whales. Uh, and so in the immediate aftermath of uh, the uh, so so let me back up and say that until 2017, uh, North Atlantic right whales were very rarely seen uh, so far north. Um, that um, that there were any reason to that there was any reason to have any of these regulations in um, in ca in much of ca Canadian waters, and we're specifically talking about the Gulf of Saint Lawrence, because in other parts of Canadian waters, um, in the northern part of the Gulf of Maine, the Bay of Fundy, uh, they have had. Uh, uh, regulations to protect right whales. But where they showed up in 2017 in large numbers for the first time was the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And 12 of the 17 right whales that died that year were in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Mm. But the thing is that the Canadians, in the immediate aftermath of the, that cataclysm, implemented all kinds of new rules. Um, and in 2018, there were zero deaths in Canadian waters. It just uh, so happens that um, that uh, this year they relaxed because they thought their their um, their regulations were successful, and there was a great deal of protest among uh, fishermen in Canada uh, about the their their um, regulations that they imposed in 2017. Um, in this year, they decided to relax them, and they also discovered some. Um, some uh, um, uh, blind um, uh, what what is the term uh, blind spots in their policies um, in that they uh, apparently had insufficient surveillance uh, the the areas that they 
that they previously had closed where they expected to see right whales weren't the same areas that the right whales showed up in uh, this past summer. And so we saw 10 right whales die uh, in um, nine of which I believe died in Canadian waters. Um, and so, uh, so they have actually been amending and, and changing their policies to try to come up with a, a better plan. Um, so to suggest that Canadian that the Canadian government isn't doing anything or enough, I think is a specious argument because they have taken quite swift action. Maybe it's not the right approach. Maybe it's insufficient. Uh, but uh, to say they're ignoring the problem, uh, I think it doesn't take into effect what they're what they've actually done. Mm. Well, David, uh, I, I thank you so much for for all of this insight. And I know I know we're on the clock here, uh, but I just wanted to open this up to you. If you had any final thoughts or uh, any, anything that's lingering in your mind here as you work on your film uh, on this subject. I just say that, you know, th these issues are vital to our region. Um, uh, fisheries are a huge part and have been historically for our economy and our culture, uh, but also uh, the uh, these iconic species are part of our legacy as well. And it is a fine thread uh, uh, that has to be, uh, or a fine uh, needle that has to be threaded through uh, this process to get uh, a, a fair balance between the conservation concerns and the economic concerns. And that's really hard. Um, and that is what we're looking at in our film, which uh, we are expecting to broadcast to a national audience uh, about this very subject, uh, hopefully this spring. Uh, we're still uh, working out the details and we're hard at work trying to finish this film. Uh, but um, uh, we're hoping uh, that people understand the consequences of losing uh, this this species um, and also uh, the challenges of trying to prevent that extinction. Well, David, it's a, it's a pleasure to, to have you on the American Shoreline podcast again. And uh, I think it's an issue that really resonates around the country. This is one of the first major fisheries to go through a climate change oriented adjustment. Um, it's, it pulls in the character of the community along the shoreline. It's economically a huge issue. Uh, it puts to the test federal regulatory power. It's worth watching, and we would love to have you back on when your film comes out. We'd like to uh, get our listeners out there to uh, to catch up with you. How can people get in touch with uh, with you or get a hold of Lobster Wars or Sacred Cod or keep track of what you're doing? Yeah, um, well, uh, again, Lobster War is going to be released nationally uh, on uh, every digital platform and cable platform starting on January 21st. And you can go to lobsterwar.com uh, to find out more and to find links to how you can actually uh, watch the film. And, um, and our new film, uh, we will uh, be releasing uh, information uh, and I promise to share that with you as soon as uh, we can uh, we can make that public but in the coming weeks and months we will be finishing the film and uh, we will do everything to get spread the word 
Thank you very much, David Abel, uh, documentary filmmaker, reporter for the Boston Globe, and host, I have to mention, David, of the podcast, Climate Rising. Um, tell us a little bit about that, if you don't mind, and, and maybe direct our audience to how to catch up with your podcast. Sure. Um, so Climate Rising is uh, a podcast about the impact of business on uh, climate change, what uh, businesses uh, have done to arguably increase uh, our carbon uh, uh, emissions and what they uh, what they're trying to do to change the equation and what they should be doing uh, to do that. And um, you can find um, you can find Climate Rising on uh, on any podcast provider that you have. So uh, definitely check it out. We'll check it out. Thank you very much, David Abel, ladies and gentlemen from Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for being uh, on our kickoff show for 2020 on the American Shoreline podcast. My pleasure. And I look forward to chatting again. 